This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Tragedy of Puddinhead Wilson by Mark Twain Chapter 8 Marsa Tom Tramples His Chance the holy passion of friendship is of sweet and steady and loyal and enduring a nature that it will last through a whole lifetime if not asked to lend money puddinhead wilson's calendar consider well the proportions of things it is better to be a young june bug than an old bird of paradise. Puddinhead Wilson's Calendar It is now necessary to hunt up Roxy. At the time she was set free and went away chambermaiding, she was thirty-five. She got a berth as second chambermaid on a Cincinnati boat in the New Orleans trade, the Grand Mogul. A couple of trips made her wanted and easy-going at the work, and infatuated her with the stir and adventure and independence of steamboat life. Then she was promoted, and became head-chambermaid. She was a favorite with the officers, and exceedingly proud of their joking and friendly way with her. During eight years she served three parts of the year on that boat, and the winters on a Vicksburg packet. But now for two months she had had rheumatism in her arms and was obliged to let the wash-tub alone. So she resigned. But she was well fixed, rich as she would have described it, for she had lived a steady life and had banked four dollars every month in New Orleans as a provision for her old age. She said in the start that she had put shoes on one barefooted nigger to trample on her with, and that one mistake like that was enough. She would be independent of the human race thenceforth forevermore, if hard work and economy could accomplish it. When the boat touched the levee at New Orleans, she bade good-bye to her comrades on the Grand Mogul, and moved her kit ashore. But she was back in an hour. The bank had gone to smash, and carried her four hundred dollars with it. She was a pauper, and homeless, also disabled bodily at least for the present. The officers were full of sympathy for her in her trouble, and made up a little purse for her. She resolved to go to her birthplace. She had friends there among the Negroes, and the unfortunate always helped the unfortunate. She was well aware of that. Those lowly comrades of her youth would not let her starve. She took the little local packet at Cairo, and now she was on the home stretch. Time had worn away her bitterness against her son, and she was able to think of him with serenity. She put the vile side of him out of her mind, 
and dwelt only on recollections of his occasional acts of kindness to her. She gilded and otherwise decorated these, and made them very pleasant to contemplate. She began to long to see him. She would go and fawn upon him, slave-like, for this would have to be her attitude, of course, and maybe she would find that time had modified him, and that he would be glad to see his long-forgotten old nurse and treat her gently. That would be lovely. That would make her forget her woes and her poverty. Her poverty. That thought inspired her to add another castle to her dream. Maybe he would give her a trifle now and then. Maybe a dollar once a month, say. Any little thing like that would help, oh, ever so much. By the time she reached Dawson's Landing, she was her old self again. Her blues were gone. She was in high feather. She would get along, surely. There were many kitchens where the servants would share their meals with her, and also steal sugar and apples and other dainties for her to carry home, or give her a chance to pilfer them herself, which would answer just as well. And there was the church. She was a more rabid and devoted Methodist than ever, and her piety was no sham, but was strong and sincere. Yes, with plenty of creature comforts and her old place in the Amen corner and her possession again, she would be perfectly happy and at peace thenceforward to the end. She went to Judge Driscoll's kitchen first of all. She was received there in great form and with vast enthusiasm. Her wonderful travels and the strange countries she had seen and the adventures she had had made her a marvel and a heroine of romance. The negroes hung enchanted upon a great story of her experiences, interrupting her all along with eager questions, with laughter, exclamations of delight, and expressions of applause, and she was obliged to confess to herself that if there was anything better in this world than steamboating, it was the glory to be got by telling about it. The audience loaded her stomach with their dinners, and then stole the pantry bare to load up her basket. Tom was in St. Louis. The servants said he had spent the best part of his time there during the previous two years. Roxy came every day and had many talks about the family and its affairs. Once she asked why Tom was away so much. The ostensible Chambers said, "'The fact is old Marster can get along better when young Marster's away than he can when he's in the town.' Yes, and he love him better, too, so he gives him fifty dollars a month. No, is that so? Chambers, you's a jokin', ain't you? Glad to goodness I ain't, Mammy. Marsa Tom told me so his own self. But never mind, tain't enough. My land, what the reason tain't enough? Well, I's gwine to tell you if you give me a chance, Mammy. The reason it tain't enough is 
because Marsa Tom gambles. Roxy threw up her hands in astonishment, and Chambers went on. Old Marsta found it out, cause he had to pay two hundred dollars for Marsa Tom's gambling debts, and that's true, Mammy, just as dead certain as you's born. Two hundred dollars? Why, what is you talking about? Two hundred dollars? Sakes alive, it's most enough to buy a tolerable good second-hand nigger with. And you ain't lying, honey. You wouldn't lie to your old mammy. It's God's own truth, just as I tell you. Two hundred dollars. I wished I may ne'er stir out in my tracks if it ain't so. And oh my land, old Marsa was just a-hoppin'. He is bilin' mad, I'll tell you. He tuck and disinherit him. Disinwitched him? Disinherit him. What's that? What do you mean? Means he busted the will. Busted the will? He would never treat him so. Take it back, you miserable imitation nigger that I bore in sorrow and tribulation. Roxy's pet castle, an occasional dollar from Tom's pocket was tumbling to ruin before her eyes. She could not abide such a disaster as that. She couldn't endure the thought of it. Her remark amused Chambers. Yeah, 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 just listen to dat. If I's imitation, what is you? Both of us is imitation white, that's what we is. And powerful good imitation, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't mount to nothing as imitation niggers. And as for shut up your foolin' fo I knock you decide ahead and tell me about that will. Tell me taint busted, do honey, and I'll ne'er forget you. Well taint cause there's a new one made, and Marsa Tom's all right again. But what is you in such a sweat bout for it, mammy? Tain't none of your business, I don't reckon. Tain't none of my business? Well, whose business is it, then, I'd like to know? Was I his mother till he was fifteen years old, or wasn't I? You answer me dat. And you speck I could see him turned out poor and ornery on the world, and never care nothing about it? I reckon if you'd ever been a mother yourself, valet de chambers, you wouldn't talk such foolishness as dat. Well, then, old Marsa forgive him, and fixed up de will again. Do dat satisfy you? Yes, she was satisfied now, and quite happy and sentimental over it. She kept coming daily, and at last she was told that Tom had come home. She began to tremble with emotion, and straightway sent to beg him to let his poor old nigger mammy have just one sight of him and die for joy. Tom was stretched at his lazy ease on a sofa when Chambers brought the petition. Time had not modified his ancient detestation of the humble drudge and protector of his boyhood. It was still bitter and uncompromising. 
He sat up and bent a severe gaze upon the face of the young fellow whose name he was unconsciously using, and whose family rights he was enjoying. He maintained the gaze until the victim of it had become satisfactorily pallid with terror. Then he said, "'What does the old Rip want with me?' The petition was meekly repeated. Who gave you permission to come and disturb me with the social attentions of niggers? Tom had risen. The other young man was trembling now, visibly. He saw what was coming, and bent his head sideways and put up his left arm to shield it. Tom rained cuffs upon the head and its shield, saying no word. The victim received each blow with a beseeching, "'Please, Marcy Tom! Oh, please, Marcy Tom!' Seven blows. Then Tom said, "'Face the door. March!' He followed behind with one, two, three solid kicks. The last one helped the pure white slave over the door-sill, and he limped away, mopping his eyes with his old ragged sleeve." Tom shouted after him, "'Send her in!' Then he flung himself, panting, on the sofa again, and rasped out the remark. He arrived just at the right moment. I was full to the brim with bitter thinkings and nobody to take it out of. How refreshing it was! I feel better!' Tom's mother entered now, closing the door behind her and approached her son with all the wheedling and supplication servilities that fear and interest can impart to the words and attitudes of the born slave. She stopped a yard from her boy and made two or three admiring exclamations over his manly stature and general handsomeness, and Tom put an arm under his head and hoisted a leg over the sofa back in order to look properly indifferent. "'My land, how you has growed, honey! "'Clad of goodness! "'I wouldn't a knowed you, Marcy Tom. "'Deed I wouldn't. "'Look at me good. "'Does you remember old Roxy? "'Does you know your old nigger mammy, honey? "'Well, now, I can lay down and die in peace, "'cause I seed. "'Cut it short, God damn it! "'Cut it short! "'What is it you want?' "'You hear that?' Just the same old Marcy Tom, always so gay and funnin' with the old mammy. I was just as sure. Cut it short, I tell you, and get along. What do you want? This was a bitter disappointment. Roxy had for so many days nourished and fondled and petted her notion that Tom would be glad to see his old nurse and would make her proud and happy to the marrow with a cordial word or two, that it took two rebuffs to convince her that he was not funning, and that her beautiful dream was a fond and foolish variety, a shabby and pitiful mistake. She was hurt to the heart, and so ashamed that for a moment she did not quite know what to do or how to act. Then her breast began to heave, the tears came, 
and in her forlornness she was moved to try that other dream of hers, an appeal to her boy's charity. And so upon the impulse and without reflection she offered her supplication, Oh, Marsa Tom, de pole mammy is in sich hard luck these days, and she's kinder crippled in the arms and can't work. And if you could give me a dollar, only just one little dollar. Tom was on his feet so suddenly that the supplicant was startled into a jump herself. A dollar? Give you a dollar? I've a notion to strangle you. Is that your errand here? Clear out, and be quick about it. Roxy backed slowly toward the door. When she was halfway, she stopped and said mournfully, Marcy, Tom, I nussed you when you was a little baby, and I raised you all by myself till you was almost a young man, and now you is young and rich, and I is po and gettin' old, and I come here believin' that you would help the old mammy long down the little road that's left twixt her and the grave, and... Tom relished this tune less than any that had preceded it, for it began to wake up a sort of echo in his conscience. So he interrupted and said with decision, though without asperity, that he was not in a situation to help her and wasn't going to do it. Ain't you ever gwine to help me, Marsa Tom? No. Now go away and don't bother me any more. Roxy's head was down in an attitude of humility. But now the fires of her old wrongs flamed up in her breast and began to burn fiercely. She raised her head slowly, till it was well up, and at the same time her great frame unconsciously assumed an erect and masterful attitude with all the majesty and grace of her vanished youth in it. She raised her finger and punctuated with it. You has said the word. You has had your chance, and you has trampled it under your foot. When you get another one, you'll get down on your knees and beg for it. A cold chill went to Tom's heart. He didn't know why for he did not reflect that such words from such an incongruous source, and so solemnly delivered, could not easily fail of that effect. However, he did the natural thing. He replied with bluster and mockery, "'You'll give me a chance, you? Perhaps I'd better get down on my knees now. But in case I don't, just for argument's sake,' What's going to happen, pray? This is what is going to happen. I's gwine as straight to yo uncle as I can walk and tell him every last thing I knows about you. Tom's cheek blanched, and she saw it. Disturbing thoughts began to chase each other through his head. How can she know? And yet she must have found out. She looks it. I've had the will back only three months, and I'm already deep in debt again. 
and moving heaven and earth to save myself from exposure and destruction with a reasonably fair show of getting the thing covered up if I'm just let alone. And now this fiend has gone and found me out somehow or other. I wonder how much she knows. Oh, 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 it's enough to break a body's heart. But I've got to humor her. There's no other way. Then he worked up a rather sickly sample of a gay laugh and a hollow chipperness of manner, and said, Well, well, Roxy, dear, old friends like you and me mustn't quarrel. Here's your dollar. Now tell me what you know. He held out the wild cat bill. She stood as she was and made no movement. It was her turn to scorn persuasive foolery now, and she did not waste it. She said with a grim implacability in voice and manner, which made Tom almost realize that even a former slave can remember for ten minutes insults and injuries returned for compliments and flatteries received, and can also enjoy taking revenge for them when the opportunity offers. What does I know? I'll tell you what I knows. I knows enough to bust that will to flinders, and more, mind you, more. Tom was aghast. More, he said. What do you call more? Where's there any room for more? Roxy laughed a mocking laugh, and said scoffingly with a toss of her head and her hands on her hips, Yes. Oh, I reckon, course you'd like to know, with your poor little rag dollar, what you reckon I's gwine to tell you for? You ain't got no money. I's gwine to tell your uncle, and I'll do it this minute, too. He'll give me five dollars for the news, and mighty glad, too. She swung herself around disdainfully and started away. Tom was in a panic. He seized her skirts and implored her to wait. She turned and said loftily, Look at here. What is it I told you? You, you, I don't remember anything. What was it you told me? I told you that the next time I give you a chance, you'd get down on your knees and beg for it. Tom was stupefied for a moment. He was panting with excitement. Then he said, Oh, Roxy, you wouldn't require your young master to do such a horrible thing. You can't mean it. I'll let you know mighty quick whether I means it or not. You call me names and as good as spit on me when I comes here, po and ornery and humble, to praise you for being growed up so fine and handsome, and tell you how I used to muss you and tend to you and watch you when you was sick and hadn't no mother but me and the whole world, and beg you to give the po old nigger a dollar for to get her something to eat, and you call me names names dad blame you yes sir i gives you just one chance mo and that's now and it lasts only half a second you hear tom slumped to his knees and began to beg saying 
You see, I'm begging, and it's honest begging, too. Now tell me, Roxy, tell me. The air of two centuries of unatoned insult and outrage looked down on him and seemed to drink in deep draughts of satisfaction. Then she said, Fine, nice, young, white gentleman kneeling down to a nigger wench. I's wanted to see dat just once before I's called. Now, Gabriel, blow de horn. I's ready. Get up. Tom did it. He said humbly, Now, Roxy, don't punish me any more. I deserved what I've got. But be good and let me off with that. Don't go to Uncle. Tell me. I'll give you the five dollars. Yes, I bet you will, and you won't stop there another. But I ain't going to tell you here. Good gracious, no. Is you feared at the haunted house? N no. Well, then you come to the haunted house about ten or eleven tonight and climb up the ladder, cause the stair steps is broke down, and you'll find me. I's a roostin' in the haunted house, cause I can't afford to roost nowheres else. She started toward the door, but stopped and said, Give me the dollar bill. He gave it to her. She examined it and said, Hmm. <laughs> Like enough, the bank's busted. She started again, but halted again. Has you got any whiskey? Yes, a little. Fetch it. He ran to his room overhead and brought down a bottle, which was two-thirds full. She tilted it up and took a drink. Her eyes sparkled with satisfaction, and she tucked the bottle under her shawl, saying, It's prime. I'll take it along. Tom humbly held the door for her, and she marched out as grim and erect as a grenadier. End of chapter 8